0: Amen. I want to invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses thirty-one and thirty-two. Romans chapter eight, verses thirty-one and thirty-two. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to mention uh, something. We have had a number of announcements this morning, and all of them have been so encouraging. Uh, think about um, we're going to be starting our fall semester of ministries with community groups and cohorts and Wednesday night studies Uh, and then uh, just your generosity as a church as we think about um, both of the Ellie's being fully supported now and just remarkable your response and giving to support them and it's remarkable that they've been able to meet those goals so quickly and so we praise God for that. Uh, Also, your generosity in giving this summer, uh, as we saw a dip in the giving for a few months, and uh, July was our largest month of giving, and so we praise God for that and uh, thankful for your generosity. And then I want to mention now uh, something that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, On Sunday, August 27th, we are, instead of having our members' meeting immediately following the morning service, uh, we're going to have a prayer service here at the church at 6 o'clock that evening. And all are invited to the prayer service, and so we will spend some time singing some songs together. I'll give a short devotional, but we'll spend most of our time praying together. The service will last about 45 minutes, and then after the service, we'll ask our members to stay behind for our members meeting. And so really looking forward to this time together as a church, uh, where we are able to pray together as a church body as we launch into our fall ministry. And so, I encourage you to mark that on your calendar. Sunday, August twenty seventh, twenty seventh. Yes, that's right. At six o'clock here at the church. Well, this morning we are going to turn to Romans chapter eight again, and uh, I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 8, eighteen, and I'll read through to verse uh, thirty-two, and we will spend our time this morning focusing on verse thirty-one and thirty-two. So, Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse eighteen. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see... He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word and for the promises of the Gospel. We pause again to acknowledge our need for You, and we ask that You would lead us and guide us in these moments as we consider Your Word speak to us by the power of your Spirit, and through your Word we pray. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, uh, one of my close friends and I were in the same Sunday school class, and his father taught the Sunday school class. And years later, after we had long ago moved on from that class, I ran into his father And we spent a little bit of time catching up, and I was telling him what was going on in my life and some of the things that I was doing at that time. And I remember him responding to me and saying, Bert, I just want you to know that I am for you. I'm on your team. I'm cheering you on. I'm for you, and I'm for your success. And if there's anything I can do in the future, you let me know. He made that statement to me maybe 25, 30 years ago, and I still remember it today. Some of you know and have known the blessing of someone being for you, the life-giving experience of someone saying those words to you. I remember when he said that to me. It was invigorating. It was inspiring. It was encouraging. Some of you have known that experience. Others of you have not. But let me ask you this what if we knew were absolutely persuaded at the core of our being that someone was for us and not just anyone but the god of the universe that he was for us that he was all in that he would never be against us in all our joys When we pass the test, when we get engaged, when we make the team, when we find out that we're pregnant, when we receive the promotion, and in all our sorrows, in all our difficulties, when we struggle in school, when we feel like we don't fit in and there's nowhere that we really connect, when our marriage is falling apart. When our child gets sick. When we lose our job. What if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for us. In the good and the glorious and also in the bad and in the ugly. Oh my friends, what different people we would be. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what different people we would be? More content, more resilient, more bold, more joyful, more at peace. And this is the glorious gospel truth that Paul takes up in our passage. That God is for us. That He's all in. That He's got our back. That He will never be against us in Jesus Christ. As we consider this truth this morning that God is for us, I want us to see it from three different perspectives in our text. First, we will consider God is for us a truth observed. Secondly, God is for us a reality demonstrated. And third, God is for us a hope experienced. So a truth observed, a reality demonstrated, and a hope experienced. First of all, God is for us a truth observed. Look there in verse 31, we read these words, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Now this first question here that we read, what shall we say to these things, is actually a rhetorical device that Paul uses several times in his letter to the Romans, and he uses it to wrap up one discussion, so he's been talking about something, and he uses this question to kind of conclude one section and then launch into another section in which he'll consider the implications of what he's just talked about. And so that, in some ways, is what's happening here. Now, there is some debate that when Paul asks this question, what shall we say to these things, there is some debate over what Paul means by these things. In other words, how far is Paul wanting us to go back? How far back is Paul referring when he refers to these things? Some people believe that Paul is referring all the way back to the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter one verse one, and everything that he said up to this point. Some people think no, Paul is just referring back to Romans chapter five up to what he said at this point. Others believe it's in a you know within Romans chapter eight itself that he's referring back to these things. Now we may not know exactly how far back Paul wants us to go when he refers to these things. But we can know for sure that Paul has at least in mind the immediate context of what he has just said. In particular in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. I preached this text a few weeks ago. Do you remember the essential message that Paul was communicating in verses 28 through 30? Paul there teaches us that God, by his sovereign and certain and unalterable purpose, he will work all things together for the good of us being conformed to the image of Christ and to ensure our eternal salvation. It was in those verses that Paul lays out what we refer to as the golden chain of salvation. You remember the ideas of foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification and each one of these are like links in the chain of salvation and it's an indestructible chain. Each one is linked to the other. So those whom He foreknows, He predestines and those whom He predestines, He calls and those whom He calls, He justifies and those whom He justifies, He glorifies In other words, God's purpose to save us is immutable, it's unchangeable, it's certain, it's reliable. And now as Paul has reflected on these ideas, we read his response in chapter 8 verse 31. He responds by saying, what then shall we say to these things? It's as though as Paul has reflected on the gospel in these previous verses... And he's reflected on God's sovereign grace. It's as though God's sovereign grace is so stupendous. It's so extraordinary that Paul is left speechless. Without words. Dumbfounded. What then shall we say to these things? John Piper insightfully points out that Paul's answer to that question, what shall we say to these things, is to answer by saying, we say it again. We say it again. Perhaps we say it from a different angle or maybe with a different emphasis or perhaps from a little bit of a different perspective, but we say it again. And it makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, this is what we'll see that the Apostle Paul does It makes sense because oftentimes things that are most stupendous in this life, that in fact leave us on the verge of being speechless, are the things that are most worthy of repeating. You know, in many ways that is what we do every Sunday morning when we gather together for Christian worship. We say it again and again and again. We repeat and glory in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each time we may say it a little bit differently and a little bit from a different perspective and a little bit of a different emphasis and maybe a new insight, but we say it again and again and again. And the Bible's given us various forms in which we may express it. We may sing it in a song. We may voice it in a prayer. We may hear it in a testimony. We may celebrate it in baptism. We may remember it in the Lord's Supper. We may glory in it as the Word of God is preached. But we say it again and again and again. For there is nothing in all the world that is more worthy of repeating. And so this is what Paul does. Notice there in the text, he says it again. And this is how Paul says it this time. If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, having reflected on God's unalterable purpose to save us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, having reflected upon God's foreknowledge and predestination and his calling and his justification and his glorification, this is the truth that Paul discerns. This is the truth that he observes. If all of this is true, if God has known us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us and purposed to save us before time, if all of this is true, then if God is for us, who can be against us? Now understand that Paul is not suggesting here that Christians have no enemies. In fact, in verse 17, you'll remember that Paul insists that we must suffer with Christ. Christ. If we are to be glorified with Him. In verse 23, Paul speaks about the fact that living in this broken and fallen world, we groan inwardly as we wait adoption as sons. Or later on in verse 35 of the same chapter, Paul will identify tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and sword as possible sufferings that the Christian will experience in this life. It's not that Christians have no enemies. It's not that Christians have no adversaries. In fact, the world and the flesh and the devil all conspire to destroy our souls and to rob us of the salvation that God has purposed to give us. In a very real sense, Christians have many enemies and fierce adversaries. But what Paul is saying here in verse 31 is that although the Christian does in fact have many enemies, enemies and fierce adversaries, because God is for us, no one and nothing can successfully be against us. In other words, no one and nothing can successfully thwart or defeat God's purpose of salvation in our lives. Having reflected on these glorious gospel truths of God's purpose certain purpose of our salvation. This is the truth that Paul observes. Since God is for us. No one can successfully thwart God's ultimate purpose of our redemption and salvation. Secondly, God is for us a reality demonstrated. A reality demonstrated. Look there in verse 32 and we read these words he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all now paul has already stated in verse 31 that god is for us but we can imagine someone responding by saying well if god is for me if that is really true then of course i would acknowledge that no one is powerful enough, no one is shrewd enough to thwart God's purposes, if in fact He is for me. But how can I know that God is really for me? How can I be sure that He is for me? In fact, it's especially difficult to believe that God is for me when things are not going well, when the car breaks down, or the refrigerator stops working. Or your friends are upset with you. Or your parents aren't getting along. Or someone close to you passes away. How can I in those moments believe that God is for me? And here's Paul's answer in verse 32. Because God has demonstrated His foreness for you in history. Because God has demonstrated His foreness for you at the cross. The demonstration, the certain demonstration of God's forness for us is revealed in the death of God's Son. Now notice this in verse 32. I want us to spend some time now just kind of settling in and considering this historical demonstration of God's love for us at the cross. And notice here in verse 32, notice how Paul articulates the Father's role in the death of the Son here in this verse. He uses two verbs to describe the Father's role in the death of the Son. The first verb is "phedomai," It means to save from loss or discomfort, to spare. And so we read there in verse 32, He, that is God the Father, did not spare. And it seems clear that Paul is making an allusion here. When he uses this verb, he uses it very intentionally to make an allusion to Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. You may know the story. Abraham was married to his wife Sarah, and they were unable to conceive. God made a promise to them that they would have a son. And they waited 25 years. For God to fulfill this promise. God did in fact fulfill the promise and they were gifted a child, Isaac. He was their only son. And not only was he their only son, he was the son of promise. In other words, God had made these promises to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. and That through him he would bless all the nations of the earth. But all the promises that God had made to Abraham would come through this son, Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, we read that Isaac now has grown up, he's become a young man, and God comes to Abraham, and God tells Abraham to build an altar and to lay his son Isaac out on the altar and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in worship to him. And we read in that same chapter that in a remarkable act of faith that Abraham obeys God. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son. But as Abraham lays Isaac out on the altar and he lifts his hand to slaughter his own son, God intervenes and demands that Abraham relent and preserve the life of Isaac. And then we read in Genesis chapter 22 verses 16 to 18. The Lord speaks to Abraham and says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld, have not spared. It's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 8 verse 32. Because you have not withheld, because you not have, because you have not spared your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Of course, the great distinction in these two accounts, the one in Genesis chapter 22 and what we read here in Romans chapter 8, is that in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was willing to not spare his son, but God intervened to spare him. However, when the enemies of God conspired to kill the Son of God, God did not intervene, but he did not spare His own son. The father did not spare his son at the cross. The second word that Paul uses here to describe the role of the father in the death of the son is "paradidomi." It means to hand over, to give over, to deliver. It's interesting because this word is used a number of times in reference to the death of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, when Judas comes to the religious leaders and he asks the priest, What will you give me if I deliver him over? Same word. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, when we read that the chief priest and the elders of the people bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. It's the same word. It's the same word we read in John chapter 18, verse 35, when Pilate says to Jesus, your nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. It's the same word. It's the same word in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, when we read, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. It's the same word. So we're told in the New Testament that Judas and the chief priest and the elders and the nation of Israel and Pilate all conspired to deliver him over, to give him up. But here in Romans chapter 8 verse 32 we learn that behind all the actions of these wicked men was the sovereign hand of God the Father who delivered him up. Who gave His own Son up. Of course, here we encounter the mystery of design sovereignty and human responsibility. In Acts chapter 2 verse 23, the Apostle Peter does not resolve this mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But he does acknowledge it. In that verse, he says, this Jesus delivered up. It's the same word that we've been referring to. The same word used in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty. Next statement, he says, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Human evil. Personal responsibility. So Peter is saying in the same verse here, the same statement, Jesus was crucified by lawless, wicked men. And behind those acts was a perfect, holy, righteous, sinless, sovereign God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up. And this way we see that the death of the Son was ultimately the purpose of the Father. And what Paul is stating here is is basically Paul is restating the astonishing words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 when Isaiah wrote, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is God the Father, has put him to grief. So here we see in these two words the role of the Father in the death of the Son. He did not spare, but He gave Him up. But now let's consider for a moment the Son. Who is the Son? He who did not spare His own Son. We know from the Scriptures that the Father has many adopted sons. In fact, Paul told us in verses 15 through 16 that we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness that we are the children of God. So the Father has many adopted sons. But the Scriptures also teach us that the Father has only one begotten Son. Only one Son who is co-equal. Co eternal of the same divine essence and nature of God the Father. As Paul states in verse 29 of this same chapter, he is the firstborn among many brothers, or we could say he's the firstborn among many sons. And what he means when he says he is the firstborn is that he means he is the son of greatest priority. He is the son of greatest rank. He is the son of greatest preeminence and supremacy. In this sense, he is God's only and unique son. And it was this son whom the father did not spare. Whom the father gave up. Parents, you know the great agony that you experience if one of your children is hurt or mistreated or abused. I've shared this with you before, but I think this relationship between a father and a son and the love that exists between a father and a son is actually beautifully illustrated in the example of David and his son Absalom. You may know the story, David was the king in Israel. And Absalom, his son, set his sights on the throne. And so he conspired against David and he brought together a coup, raised up an army, rebelled against David. And he was successful at one level. In fact, he was so successful that David had to flee Jerusalem with his family because he feared for himself and he feared for the life of his family. But then the Lord is gracious to David, and David's able to kind of reorganize himself, and his army launches out a counteroffensive. And they pursue Absalom and ultimately capture him. And David is able to return to Jerusalem. And when David returns to Jerusalem, a report comes back to David that the counteroffensive has been successful. And David's first question is he wants to know what has happened to his son. What about my son, Absalom? And the messengers who came back and gave the report to David that the counteroffensive had been successful, they give him the news that his son, Absalom, is dead. Now, at this moment, we would think that David would rejoice, right? That David would be delighted. Here is this treacherous and rebellious son. He got what he deserved. But that's not what we read. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, we read that David began to weep and then we read these words that David cried out, Oh, my son Absalom. My son! My son Absalom! Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom! My son! My son! And this, my friends, consider is the impossible this is the response of an imperfect father for a treacherous and rebellious son. And yet, at the cross, what we see is a perfect father. A perfect father observing the death of his blameless, perfect. Righteous son who never once gave him even the slightest reason to be disappointed or to feel betrayed or spurned. And we can imagine that the cry of David must have resonated in the father's heart as he cried, my son, my son, my only son. In fact, the Gospel writers record that as Jesus hung on the cross at midday when the sun is full and bright, that darkness fell across the land. An expression of the anguish of the Father's heart. My Son. My Son. And now we come to our text to perhaps The two most beautiful words in all of scripture. Notice it there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, and here it is, for us all. Why did the father not spare the son? Why did the father give up his only son? He did it for us. All that Christ suffered on the cross, the ridicule, the humiliation, the judgment, the death, the separation from His Father, Paul tells us here that He did it for us. It seems too much, doesn't it? It seems too extravagant. It seems too excessive. It seems too lavish. Could you imagine a sinner coming before the throne of God with all his or her sin facing impending judgment? And that sinner looking up into the face of God and saying, I know I deserve your judgment. You have every reason to condemn me. But there is one way out of this. There is one solution. If you would simply give up your son, if you would allow him to be condemned, if you would allow him to be judged, if you would allow him to be cursed and crucified in my place, then that would solve the problem. Who would have the audacity to think of such a thing? Who would have the audacity to propose it to the Father? And yet, that is just what the Father chose to do. This is exactly what the Father Himself chose to do because of the nature of the expansiveness, the liberality of His love for us. In these two words, for us, we actually see the glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now those are two big words, but simply what it means is that Jesus at the cross, when He died on the cross, He died as a substitute in our place. To offer the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. So He was our substitute, that's what substitutionary means. He died in our place, He died for us, and in so doing, He offered a perfect atonement. A perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that if we trust in this sacrifice, if we trust in the Lord Jesus and receive this sacrifice for ourselves, then God forgives us. And He will be eternally committed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah again announced the purpose of Jesus' death and the glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement some 700 years before Jesus was ever born. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So how can we know? How can we be confident that God is for us? This is Paul's answer. Because God has demonstrated His forness for us in the crucifixion. In the atoning death of His Son. He has demonstrated His commitment to us in history, in time, and in space at the cross. Some of you know who Patrick Mahomes is. He's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. And um, arguably, he's the best quarterback in the league at this time. He's won two Super Bowls. And he is known for the fact that when he manages to make some acrobatic escape or throw a long pass or manage some long run, he's known to celebrate by running around and beating his chest and shouting, this is what I do, this is what I do. Listen, my friends, in a much, a much, much greater sense, the cross is God's declaration written across human history. This is what I do. More than that, this is who I am. And as God does that, as He writes His own character across human history demonstrated in the reality of the cross... He explodes all of our limited and finite categories for His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. And we come to realize that His love for us is far more bold and far more expansive and far more boundless than we could ever imagine. And we come to realize that God really is in ways that we could never fathom for us. And will never in Christ be against us. Third, God is for us a hope experienced. So we've considered a truth observed, a reality demonstrated, and third, a hope experienced. Look there in the text and we read these words. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here it is how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now notice here in our text that Paul's argument in verse 32 is from greater to lesser. Okay, So he argues first for the greater, and then by virtue of establishing the greater, he then argues for the lesser. So the great dilemma... In our salvation. Is whether God would be willing to sacrifice his own son. In order to redeem us. And to save us. That's the greater thing. But if God is willing to do that. If he's willing to even sacrifice his own son for our salvation. Then this is the argument. Anything and everything else. That he might give us. Is of lesser value. So. What is, in our text, what is the anything and everything else that God might give us? What is the all things that Paul speaks of here? How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Well, the all things needs to be determined by the context. Let me just state up front that the all things here is not a reference to health and wealth and prosperity in the immediate. Rather, if we look in the context, we need to interpret all things here in light of what Paul has said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul says there that God is working all things together for our good. And what is our good that he's speaking of in verse 28? We mentioned this several weeks ago when we looked at the text. The good that Paul has in mind here is is the good that he explains in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the very next verse. The good is God's good purpose to conform us to the image of His Son. And the good is stated in chapter 8, verse 30, that we would experience final glorification. So, the good that Paul is speaking of is that we would increasingly become like Jesus in this life... And ultimately become like Jesus in the life to come. In His moral perfection. And also with a new resurrected body like Jesus Himself. So do you see here Paul's logic? If God gave us His greatest gift, namely His Son... How much more can we be confident that He will graciously and generously give us all that His Son purchased for us at the cross? John Murray, the New Testament theologian, states it this way. Quote, The greatest gift of the Father, the most precious donation given to us was not things, It was not calling, nor justification, nor even glorification. It was not even security. These are favors dispensed in the fulfillment of God's gracious design. But the unspeakable and incomparable gift is the giving up of His own Son, So great is that gift, so marvelous are its implications, so far reaching its consequences, that all graces of lesser proportion are certain of free bestowment. End of quote. In other words, Paul has been talking about all these glorious gospel promises. Calling, justification, glorification. What Paul is saying here is, could you imagine the Father... Giving up his son for our redemption and then withholding the calling that brings us to himself. Could you imagine the father giving up his son at the cross and then withholding the justification that makes us right before God? Could you imagine the father giving up his son at the cross and then withholding glorification in which we are finally transformed and become like the son himself? It's unthinkable. If the Father has given His Son, then surely in the giving of His Son, He guarantees all the promises of the Gospel. He will call you to Himself. He will justify you before the Father. He will glorify you for eternity. How will He not also give us graciously all things which would secure us being conformed to the image of His Son and being eternally secure? In his salvation. And this now is our hope as Christians that we experience that in all things, the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the joys and the sorrows, God is conforming us to the image of his Son and ensuring our final glorification. So God is for us. A truth observed. A reality demonstrated, a hope experienced. Many people have heard of Martin Luther and the uh, prominent role that he played in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. But Kent Hughes actually tells the story of the relationship that existed between Martin Luther and his closest companion who is named Philip Melanchthon. Luther once described their relationship, the relationship that he had with Philip Melanchthon in this way. Luther writes, quote, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing the wild forest. But Master Philip comes along softly and gently Sowing and watering with joy according to the gifts which God abundantly bestowed upon him. You see, Luther, by natural disposition, was bold and assertive, might even say harsh. Melanchthon, on the other hand, although he was unusually brilliant, was gentle and reserved. And yet what we find from the historical record is that through all the upheaval and turmoil and real threats of danger that accompanied the Reformation, these men's lives were in danger. Melanchthon all along remained steadfast and faithful by Luther's side. In fact, even to this day, Luther and Melanchthon are buried side by side at the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. So what was it that sustained? What was it that emboldened this gentle and reserved man as he walked through all the ups and downs and upheaval of the Protestant Reformation? Well, in all his lectures and in all his letters, this verse, Romans 8:31 was quoted more often than any other. If you look at Philip Melanchthon's lectures, if you look at his classes, you see this verse over and over and over again. If God is for us, who can be against us? In fact, he had this verse written out and placed on a wall in his study so that he could be repeatedly, consistently reminded of its truth. Finally, on his dying bed, a pastor came to Philip Melanchthon and he was reading Scripture to him. And as Melanchthon was facing death, and this this pastor was reading Scripture to him, he came to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and Melanchthon exclaimed from his deathbed, Read those words again. And the pastor read, If God is for us, who can be against us? And Melanchthon murmured, That's it. That's it. After a life of faithful service to the Lord in the face of death, Melanchthon was still claiming to, clinging to this truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? My friends, if we cling to this promise, we also, like Philip Melanchthon, will be a different people. More bold, more resilient, more joyful, more faithful, more at peace, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your eternal commitment to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have not only spoken this truth that You are for us and not against us in Christ, but that You have demonstrated it to us through the death of Your Son on the cross. Lord, we confess that in our unbelief and the hardness of our hearts that we are so oftentimes so resistant to believe this truth, so reluctant, To hope in this promise. Lord, we pray that You would forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, we pray that You would ground us more deeply in this confidence that You are in Christ for us, all together for us, and eternally committed to us. As we come to take communion together now, Lord, we pray that as we reflect on the death of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, That we would be filled with this hope, with this promise, that you are in fact for us. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it.